Hey there, listeners. Welcome to This Humana Life, a podcast for all Humana associates. We have amazing stories to tell and learning experiences to offer. We also believe the best knowledge is knowledge that is shared. Throughout our podcast journey, you'll hear advice from thought leaders, gain insights into areas of expertise other than your own, and hear the inspiring stories of others. This production is made possible with the support of the Women's Network Resource Group and by the dedication of our core team. I'm Tara DeLucia. I'm Carmen Pantoja Evans. I'm Brittany LaMere. And this podcast is produced by Melissa Nichols. We're looking forward to hearing what topics are important to you. Join the conversation in our buzz group by visiting go forward slash THL. Also, make sure to text the acronym THL to 239-355 to have new episodes sent straight to your mobile Thursday morning. Hey there, listeners. Welcome to This Humana Life. In the studio, we have Carmen, Tara, and myself, Brittany Lemaire. And then we also have the pleasure of having Dr. Brian Loy here with us as well. Dr. Loy, can you share a little bit about your journey through Humana and what you do here at Humana? Well, it's probably best for me to just start with how did I get here. Um, I I was uh, minding my own business practicing uh, as a pathologist, a hematopathologist, so a blood blood doctor and cancer doctor over in a local community hospital and a friend of mine came to me and asked me if I might be interested in trying my hand in the payer world and I took a job early on in my career with uh, Medicare and a Medicare contractor here locally and its parent company happened to move on over to Humana and he said would you be interested in trying your hand in the commercial payer business and I said I don't even know what that means but I trusted this man and I thought was really drawn to the idea of dealing with populations and dealing with teams and understanding the broader landscape and having influence on millions of lives rather than just dealing with one-on-one patient and patient cases. So I was drawn to that and brought me to Humana for a 16-plus year journey of, of learning about health and population management in a way that I would have never had exposure to. And then what is your um, official title here at Humana? Well, I'm corporate medical director for lab, for oncology, and personalized medicine. That's that's a, a lot to be working on yeah. all at one time. And there's been this organizational shift over to value-based care. Um, can you kind of share your personal definition of what you believe value-based care is? Well, Brittany, you'll hear my bias in here because uh, when, when I say value, I don't immediately go to dollar signs. I go to patient values. And for me, what that really means, let's find out what's important to the patient, what's important to communicate to the patient. So understanding where the patient is in their health journey, where they are in a disease process, and really laying out to them the risk and the benefits of care. Because in our current situation, there's such variance that that variance creates some under-treatment for folks and some over-treatment for folks. And I don't always believe that when people are entering the healthcare delivery system that they really know what they're signing up for. We call that informed consent, but what really needs to happen in my mind is for folks to understand, what are we gonna do with what we're getting ready to do to me? Why is that important to me? And how can we think about what's the right approach for me to manage either the disease that I have in front of me or the symptoms that I have in front of me, or whether it be a lifetime of risk? All right, so Dr. Loy, uh, what's OMOC, and also is this unique to Humana? Uh, OMOC is 
short for the oncology model of care. It is not unique to Humana. Uh, there are many payers and even the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services are trying to reinvent the payment structure around how medical oncology services are delivered in this country. And it really speaks to what we were just talking about. Uh, it's, it's trying to find the things that are gaps in care for patients and patient values through very rich conversations. And once you identify what those values and gaps are, making plans, documenting those plans, and making sure that they're very clear to the patient. So what are those things? It's the importance of understanding your disease, cancer, for example, and what your trajectory is going to look like. It's understanding your treatment plan and what the risks and benefits are and what you can expect. And if something goes wrong, what to do about that. And it's screening for patients, uh, I'll call it their values. It's their anxiety. It's their depression. It's their end-of-life care wishes. It's their occupational desires to be able to maintain and create some sort of normalcy in their life that could inform the treatment plan in ways that we've really never asked clinicians to do. And we provided them some support. And the the understanding is, is that if we get all of these pieces in place and this infrastructure in place to coordinate the care around our members, that they'll have a better outcome. And that's and that was my question was, uh, How's the model presented? And it's presented through the physicians and the clinicians. It is. It's, it's our goal to be able to try to ensure the things that we all agree should happen are happening mm-hmm. and that we can get good documentation. And we can learn from that because the fact of the matter is, is all of the folks that are doing these, all of the payers that are experimenting with these models are really trying to figure out what is the new way and what works in terms of intervention because we have gaps in health literacy in this country we have gaps in Mm -hmm. social determinants of health Mm -hmm. in this country but we really haven't focused on being able to extract those out of the patient dialogue to be able to address those in ways that are quite creative and maybe very geographically i'll call it specific so has this model been implemented for a couple years, five years we're, currently? We're on the nascent side of it, so we're, it's January, so we're, we're still learning our way into mm, it. Very good. And I, I kind of wanted to take the opportunity to add some richness to a comment that Dr. Loy had made whenever we're considering um, our patients and you know their occupations. There was um, a, a patient that had went through um, one of our oncology management programs, and they were a violinist. And through their treatment regimen, one of the drugs, a side effects was neuropathy in the fingertips. And so from the oncologist looking at this and having this rich dialogue with the patient, we recognized that, you know, this treatment wasn't the best for the member. So then they decided to do another supportive agent instead so that this member would not lose the feeling in their, in their fingertips because they were violinists. To me, that is one of the most touching things that to know that we're doing this as a payer and we care for our members and we're looking at something so much more than dollar signs. And and even closer to home for me, I lost a family member this last year who was a practicing dentist up till two weeks before his uh, demise. And he, very important to him to be able to have the the sensitivity in his fingertips to be able to conduct the work that really brought, brought him great pleasure in his last hours and days of life. So I'm sure you hear some fantastic stories, like the one you just shared, Dr. Loy and, and Brittany, about um, someone that she knows about through the work world. Uh, so I'm sure you gather this data, and, and you're able to share with um, the team. We do. You mm-hmm. know, and it's very interesting. You know, we started off by talking about being able to influence 
populations of millions. Mm. And we look at data. We look at reams of data and we try to sort mm. and spreadsheet data. But I, I find that uh, stopping there is just, it, it's, it's not very satisfying. Mm. It's the vignettes and it's the anecdotes and it's the stories from associates, it's the stories from members that really generate the emotion and the action and provide the magnetism and the momentum for the teams to do their work every day. Yes, well, and, and it becomes a reminder that it's it's each individual heartbeat, you know, and it's it's a human being who's got these different situations and life experiences and things that are important to them, and it's it's that holistic care which I think Humana is really um, very passionate about. And I would agree with that, and I, I love your word heartbeat because it, that that resonates with me, and it's it is the individual, but it's also uh, it's it's striking that you quickly recognize that we are not alone. And when someone has cancer, it's not only affecting their lives, it's their family, it's their loved ones, it's their associates, it's their coworkers. And it, we, we don't live in a vacuum and it has an impact on all of us. Well, okay, you said you've been here about 15 years. Has it always been this way or when did you see that shift? I think the sensitivity came when we started to see the pipeline of technologies and screening and the new drugs that were coming into vogue that elevated this discussion to help folks to understand that if we took some interventions, we could improve the lives, we could improve the survival, and we could improve the chances for our members. I don't think there was a single event. I think there was a, a migration and an evolution, if you will, mm -hmm. to be able to say, let's figure out how to take advantage of those, and let's figure out how to take the dollars that we're going to spend and extract more value out of them. Well, and so then, and when did you see it start to happen within Humana uh, over the past 15 years? I would say when we started to see uh, many of the, the screening modalities that came into play. So we've had um, literature that has helped us to better understand if we can get folks to get screened for colorectal cancer and breast cancer, for example, we can improve survival. And some of the new newer drugs that are providing promise for uh, diseases that uh, once had very poor prognoses that are now turned into chronic diseases. So I would say when those are kind of key events that showed up where I would say we've said we've got to figure out how to help people to understand that those options are available and make sure that they understand their treatment plans to the extent that they can get the maximum amount out of that. One key event that stands out in my mind is we were looking at some of the, um, the, the drugs that were used in support of cancer patients and we were looking at our data and understanding that there were populations of folks that were only getting you know, one episode of treatment when they should have been getting three or four. And we quickly concluded that we're not getting any value. We're spending a lot of dollars and the member either through non-compliance or for whatever reasons are getting one injection from a drug that would take four in order for them to expect any sort of benefit at all. So not only is the, is the patient not getting any benefit, we're spending dollars unnecessarily that could be used to treat the, the patient in different and or better ways. So, and I, I really love that you brought up a little bit of the, uh, the the changes in the trends in cancer care because CML, chronic myeloid leukemia, is now somewhat of a manageable disease with the help of pres prescription drugs. And I feel maybe we should have prefaced this at the beginning, but uh, can we have a definition of what is cancer? Yeah. A lot of folks like to use the definition of uncontrolled growth of cells in its simplest form, and sometimes those cells end up in places where they just simply don't belong. Are there health factors that can contribute to cancer susceptibility? You know, there, there are health factors. Um, 
choose your parents wisely. So there's genetics. <laughs> so uh, there's there's that. And we talked a little bit about occupational exposure. You know, I was just reading an article about uh, the the airline industry and how being exposed to travel uh, and the radiation associated with that puts those folks at higher risk for breast cancers and other types of cancers. So. Uh, I find that interesting. And then, mm-hmm. of course, there are lifestyle factors. The things that you learned about in kindergarten, it's the don't smoke, don't drink alcohol excessively, eat a sensible diet, maintain an active lifestyle, uh, get a good night's sleep. Those those things are important. And it's creating those lifelong habits that really help you to minimize a lot of the controllable risk around cancers. What is your opinion on diet, which is, I, I define diet as what you take in every day, not a, a trendy diet. So is eating organic versus vegetarian versus all of these new fad diets how does that play into this well i I think the answer is almost in your question and Mm. that is is that if if we have so many options and opportunity and so many books and articles written about it to me that essentially says we really haven't figured that out as much mm. as we we would like we we know it's you know overeating is is not a good thing mm. obesity puts us at higher risk for cancer but when you really get into the choices around organic versus not organic or red meat versus produce etc the literature is mixed in many of those instances and as much as we'd like to be able to say these are the things that you can do to be able to incorporate in your diet and minimize your lifetime risk of cancer. Those are still questions that are being answered Mm -hmm. to give the honest answer. Mm -hmm. Very good. You are listening to This Humana Life with co-hosts Tara DeLucia, Carmen Pantoja Evans, Brittany LaMare, and our special guest. Be sure to text THL to 239 355 to have new episodes sent straight to your mobile or share with us on Yammer at go slash THL. So, and we, uh, we kind of want to lean on your expertise here. Some of the more uh, prevalent cancers that our members are facing are colorectal cancer and breast cancer. And uh, since we are part of the women's group, well, I guess we'll go ahead and start with the breast cancer about one in eight uh, women in, in the U.S. will develop invasive breast cancer over the course of a lifetime. And in 2019, an estimated 268,600 new cases of invasive breast cancer are expected to be diagnosed. And then along with that, 62,930 new cases of non-invasive in-situ cancer. For those of us that are non-clinical, can you give us a brief description of what is meant by invasive and in-situ? Uh, invasive is going in places where it doesn't belong. That's where the cancer cells have spread to places that they're not, they're not, they're no longer in their, their, their site of origin. In situ refers to being in position. So they're still located within the gland or the tissue where they originated from and they haven't spread to places that they don't belong. They're not causing mischief. So the difference between the two is, think of it as a transition, and there's a probability. Sometimes the in situ cancers will remain in their site of origin and not cause any problem for a lifetime. And in some situations, uh, they will end up migrating to and become invasive. Our problem is, is we can't, we can't tell exactly which ones are going to migrate to places where they don't belong versus those that will stay in place. So we've come up with some fairly clever 
laboratory tests that begin to look at the genetics and help us to predict what the likelihood of those types of cancers are to move to places that they don't belong. So we're still new in that space, but those are beginning to find their way into clinical practice. Um, so what type of screenings are available and at what age should preventive screenings take place? It's a great question. If you think about the screenable cancers, most folks focus on breast cancer and colon cancer. And there are now screenings for lung cancer for those folks who are at risk. There are screenings for prostate cancer. There are screenings for skin cancer. So those are the ones that tend to rise to the top. Uh, there have been efforts to try to screen for other cancers, but uh, they've been only marginally successful. When you take all of the screening, in, in my view, and lump it into one bucket, if you will, there's a spectrum where folks can begin to say, what are the risks and the benefits of screening, and how should I begin to think about that? So you ask the age question. So there's a bit of debate right now for breast cancer screening. So many would say in the ages of 50 to 74, that's non-debatable for women to get routine mammograms. There's a frequency associated with that that's still in debate. But there are some pretty good guidelines out here that I would encourage folks to go out and discuss with their doctors if they're in that age bracket and figure out a sensible screening schedule that, that makes sense depending on their risk factors as well as their comorbidities. When you get into the 40 to 49 year olds, uh, there's a little more debate on the value of screening and understanding, again, your risk factors, your risk tolerances, and figuring out what's a sensible screening regimen for you is a conversation that should take place in advance, not the day of your screening. When you get into colorectal cancer, um, again, there's some risk factors that might dictate a different age. Many st want to start at 50, some want to start at 45, depending on some demographic risk factors. Uh, the right test amongst the, uh, the, the different alternatives is the one that you'll do. Uh, many have argued for the, the colonoscopy as the gold standard, but uh, there has been a tendency to kind of move away from that and come up with other screening schedules with different types of screening cancers like some of the genetic profiling cancer screenings and other blood tests are starting to find their way into clinical practice because uh, some, some folks find that colonoscopy and the preparation associated with it are just not, not pleasurable and not desirable. So other options are becoming available in the event that folks do not want to uh, participate in, in colonoscopy. When you get into some of the other types of screening when, and you look at what multi-stakeholder groups have put together, there's a lot of debate around prostate cancer screening. We're still working out what the risks versus the benefits are there. The, these, these tests were, were designed by, for, for other purposes and found their way into the screening environment in such a way that we, we really didn't understand going into it how many how many men would have to be screened and treated in order to save one life. And it's only been in the past five to 10 years that we've been able to figure out what the, the real benefit versus the risk are. And we backed off and now we're coming back and revisiting who are those folks that would most benefit from the screening. Skin cancer screenings for melanoma and for other types of skin cancers, you know, can begin at, at a much earlier age and depending on your sun exposure, your vocation, et cetera, and your family risk factors, it's a, it's a very different conversation. To sum it all up, I would just say it's, it's worthwhile to 
have the conversations with your primary care doctors, begin having the conversations early, understand your risk factors, and begin coming up with a sensible screening schedule that makes sense for your risk tolerance. The only other point that I'd want to just call out is we're starting to see in this country an increase of colorectal cancers in much younger patients, and we're still figuring out the benefits of screening and screening strategies for that population. It's not easily explained. Um, we don't know if it's lifestyle factors or genetics or it's both. Uh, we'll probably find those answers out, but finding out those answers and dealing with the present are not very satisfying to the folks that are experiencing you know, a younger age in colorectal mm -hmm. cancer. So we're, we're still dealing with an unanswered question. Oh, I, didn't, I didn't realize that. Well, one of my questions for you is in regards to screenings, what do you feel are the reasons or the barriers that people kind of experience that prevent them from getting the necessary screenings? It's a great question. Um, I think it's different for every cancer. Uh, I'm on the uh, National Lung Cancer Roundtable, and we're dealing with the stigma associated with lung cancer. So, for example, uh, there's a stigma associated with tobacco overuse or use, and I, I believe when you get into other cancer types like uh, colon cancer and breast cancer, you know, it's simple enough to say it's, a, it's an anxiety-producing experience to go through a procedure to begin with, and uh, the callback and the anxiety associated with if something's found and what to deal with that, how to deal with that can be life-changing. So I think there is an anxiety that's produced either from the procedure or anticipating the results that creates a lot of personal barrier for folks. There's also education and literacy and access to care issues mm -hmm. that, uh, that folks need to be acquainted with, and they need to talk about those early. And I think we're coming to the place where we're, we're learning that if you're 50, for example, you probably should have been talking about colorectal cancer screening when you were 45 and getting people comfortable with mm -hmm. the procedure and get, getting comfortable with the idea that this should be a part of your routine risk management for dealing with a, a, a lifetime of cancer risk. Well, what, what do you think we can do a better job of as associates at Humana, maybe those that are member-facing? I, I don't know. I'm just trying to think of more of like an intervention. What do we need to do more of? The one thing that I think is very simple to do, I think the American Cancer Society does a great job of putting things in layman's terms to be able to have lay conversations. I don't think we can reasonably expect the medical community to interject those types of conversations when you're there for an unrelated e reason. I agree completely. So if we can up our game in terms of health literacy and understand and be able to communicate clearly what the conversation needs to look like rather than saying, you need to go get this more about, you need to go understand your lifetime risk. You need to have conversations with your family to understand the risk of cancers that may be inherent in your family and begin, begin to come up with that risk management plan, which may incorporate screening rather than just trying to focus on a particular procedure. I know with the Women's Network Resource Group, we draw attention to breast, can breast cancer awareness, uh, which is you know, prevalent in our community and, and everywhere. Since we highlight breast cancer awareness so much, is there does it, does it make sense to really draw attention to all these other cancers that you are sharing with us? I mean, should we really make a, a certain month to highlight those, make awareness? 
well, you know, we have March's colorectal cancer mm-hmm. screening awareness. Mm-hmm. And it's it's always interesting to sit with these roundtables because mm-hmm. breast cancer screening is the envy of all other cancer roundtable groups. Mm-hmm. They get the funding, they get the, mm-hmm. the, the, the press and the media and the visibility. Mm-hmm. And I think folks are still trying to learn from the breast cancer experience. How do we create awareness and mm-hmm. how do we get the adoption of screening and education and the risk management that we've been talking about. It's something we need to push a little bit more with our network resource group and amongst the Humana Associates, you know, just really make it a point because we do. We, we really highlight that month and, and there's so much more to do, so much more work. Uh, just a side note, but so I have to get my first mammogram this year and I don't think I would because we have no history. I haven't, think, thankfully, haven't been touched by it in my family so I obviously I've done the walks I've you know but it wasn't until Tammy Poole did a podcast and shared her prevention well what she did in terms of screenings and her breast cancer experience man it wasn't until I heard that story that I thought oh my gosh I am getting that mammogram you know like I I am not going to mess around with this but it's just funny how I think sometimes maturity and age and just experience and like hearing stories can have such an impact on like your next step. So I think that that's a big part of it is just hearing those human human type stories like this this is this happens and it comes out of nowhere and you can do something to prevent it. Uh, when sometimes you might think you're untouchable. But and for me, I think one of the roles, you know, many of us in our industry and in the health plan can 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 play is to to make sure that we're ensuring the quality of a screen. So let's just take your mammogram example. There's a there's a variance in the callback rate. So folks can get mammography and they're called back for an abnormality and sometimes they get a biopsy and sometimes it's very necessary and sometimes it may have been just a, a questionable call. But trying to make sure that we have folks that are very competent in delivering that care and that they have some accountability to put quality control measures in place so our members are getting the very best screenings because if you think about it if you get that wrong the likelihood of them coming back for a repeat which is what we're about we're we're wanting to make sure we're managing a lifetime of risk not just a one and done Mm -hmm. is very important and number two we don't want to miss so we don't want to over call and we don't want to under call so getting high quality centers at the front end and making sure folks have the very best experience that will help them to maintain that strategy over time is, is very important. And that's it for this episode, but the conversation isn't over. Make sure to catch part two next week. You can share with us on buzz at go forward slash THL and don't forget to subscribe by texting THL to 239-355. We want to thank you for spending time with us this week. We can use our guiding behaviors and speak up with candor to share our Humana stories through this podcast. Let's keep the conversation going together about this Humana life. Until next time, be intentional, stay curious, and inspire others.